son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. It is lucky, given the nature of my guest this week, that you cannot see his face. Andy McNabb is a decorated soldier, a best-selling author, and a former SAS operator who is still a wanted man. His name is a pseudonym. He doesn't reveal where he lives. He obscures his face in photographs. In the past, he has said that if he had to, he could run away quite easily from his life, requiring nothing more than a couple of T-shirts and his wits to survive. He was 19 when he first killed a man, and 24 when he joined the SAS. In 1991, he commanded Bravo 2-0, an eight-man patrol that was given the task of destroying underground communication links between Baghdad and northwest Iraq. McNabb was captured and tortured. Later, he wrote a book about his experiences that sold two million copies. Later still, he turned his hands to best-selling novels and film consultancy. In 2017, he was awarded a CBE. His return to civilian life has not always been straightforward. But when he was asked the scariest thing he now faces, McNabb replied, my wife, after I've forgotten to load the dishwasher. (laughs) Andy, thank you so much for agreeing to come on this podcast. Do you have a strategy for loading the dishwasher? No, that's the problem. Yeah, (laughs) I never get enough in. That's the problem. So I just shove it in. But there is a system, apparently, where you can get, you know, whatever it is, six loads in, but it never happens. Or what I do is just load it up on a Monday and wash it, open it up, and just take a cup out, use the cup, and then put it back. With a, so stuff gets cleaned about you know seven yeah. times a week. Yeah. Talking about the premise of this podcast, which is how to fail mm. and what one learns from failure, were you taught about failure as part of your military training? Yeah, we were taught failure is part of the process to get where you need to be. So if you're given sort of a formal set of orders or something for an attack, say, the language is very positive and progressive. So by 1400 hours, we will have da-da-da, you will have in that sort of parlance. But what happens is after you've said, this is what we're going to do, then you'll go, the what ifs. So yeah, action's on. Well, what happens if that doesn't happen? What are we going to do? So if any stage of this thing, the plan that is perfect fails, what it is is, well, that's okay because... That's going to happen. So what we're going to do is something different. So even from that point, there's always the the fact that nothing is perfect. You know, and even in a military context, you know, Napoleon said, he said, you know, all great plans are perfect until the enemy get involved. And then it's all wrong, you know. So nothing is perfect. And I think it's that perception 
which is given out in film, TV, that sort of stuff. When certainly on a military context, everything works the plan and it's great and it's super sort of efficient. No, it's not. It's all over the place, quite frankly, because there's loads of moving parts, loads of people, and that's just on your side, and you've got exactly the same happening with the opposition. So it's going to be very fluid. There's going to be lots of failure. I'm really interested in the idea of kind of military logic as opposed to personal feeling. Mm. So you've said in the past that the jungle part of the SAS selection process was one of the toughest things you've ever encountered. And I can imagine if I were in that situation, I would find it very hard to turn off my brain, like how I was feeling about myself. How do you switch that off and not take it personally when someone is shouting at you? Well, I, I think it's because there's a name. There's, if you like, the end game, whatever you want to call it. And the, and the fact is, is trying to get through that, that phase. It's about a month in the jungle, trying to get through that phase of the selection process and pass. And the problem is that you're constantly tested in so many different levels, whether it's a, a military level or the fact that you're living in a very confined space very claustrophobic space and there's no direction because you as that small group of four people on selection have got to you know make things happen between yourself and see if you can work as a group all those sort of things at the same time you never know how good or bad you are from the selection team think and you find that out at the end so there's that constant best effort not too sure if it is the best effort or the best way of approaching the problem so the fact of worrying about whether it's all going wrong is pointless. What it should be about is just thinking about, well, all I can do is the best I can do in the way I think it's the best way. And we'll see what happens at the end. Because it's all what matters is at the end. That's what matters. And then at the end, when you're badged and yeah. you've got into the SAS, yeah. do you feel a flood of elation? Do you allow your feelings to come in then? Well, yeah, there's a little moment. It's a great time. It really is a great time. But even then, everything's downplayed. Certainly special forces, everything is downplayed. So literally, big moment for, there was eight of us who, past this selection, big moment for us all. And we went to see the top sort of NCO, the regiment sergeant major, big deal. We gave you the, you know, what you're going to do, you're going to go and see the commanding officer. And because everything's sort of really low key, so there's no marching or saluting and there, but we didn't really know what to do because, you know, we just got in, we're not too sure what we're supposed to be doing. Nobody tells you. So we sort of all shuffled into the room and he, he literally just threw the berries like um like frisbees and he said, it's harder to keep than to get, you know, see ya. And that was it. <laughs> and off to the squadron and boom, and that was it. So even then it was sort of everything was downplayed. But at the personal level, the fact is, I'm in. As far as Arton's concerned, I, once I got to the squadron, I think I'd be the biggest idiot there. I don't care. But I'm in. That was it. And Bravo 2-0, which I mentioned there in the introduction, which is the thing that most people, I think, will know you for. Yeah. I mean, I remember so many people reading that book just on the tube and um, and it's still around today, 20 years old. I it mean, is. it was published in 1993. It it's still it? the biggest selling war book of all time. Incredible. Around the world, it's amazing. The irony being that the mission was a failure in certain respects. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, the mission was to try and cut the fibre optic cable running from Baghdad to the, the Scud teams that were in the Western deserts firing into Israel. And obviously... The Iraqis want Israel coming to the war and that would break the alliance which we had with the Arab states. So the idea was try and cut that fibre optic cable. We didn't know where it was. We weren't too sure how to destroy it when we did find it. But the whole thing of having special forces is to go out with a little information and go and do something. Because otherwise it's pointless having what we call UKSF, United Kingdom Special Forces. So we got up there uh, and we were compromised by a small boy moving these goats. And it was one of those what-ifs came in because the plan wasn't going the way 
that we wanted it to go. So the what if, what if compromised. And um, and when you say compromised, compromised the goat herd. Yeah, the, yeah the, the enemy knew we were there because yeah. we tried to get hold of the boy, but he ran off to, there was an Iraqi position a couple of hundred metres away from us. And up until then, we're all right with that because our biggest weapon is concealment. It's not actually the weapons we've got, it's concealment. So we've lost our concealment, we lost our biggest weapon, so we're compromised. So it's then trying to get out and then put one of these actions on was then try and get south and eventually try and get onto the, uh, the radios, trying to pick up um, a helicopter picks up, you know, one or two days. As long as we kept on running, we might get picked up. But that all went wrong because the Iraqis came down. So we had to implement what's called the, which is another sort of what if. It's called a, the E&E plan, the escape and evasion plan. And for us, bizarrely, it was heading to Syria, which was the closest country of safety. And normally what you do, you go to the American or the British embassies. You don't knock on the door because I won't let you in. And you, you, know, you sort of jump the fence, no weapons, hug a tree quickly so you know not a threat, so you don't get shot. And you have these statements like passwords, you know, statements that you say, which then go through the system that then get you back to you know, wherever it is. In that case, it would get us back to Cyprus. So off we went towards Syria. And then during the time trying to get up to the, the Syrian border, there was eight of us and then um, three died. Well, we thought four died, but one later on we found was wounded. Three died. Four were captured, myself included. Only one actually got over the border and got to the British Embassy in Syria and eventually was sent back, got rooted back to the, one of the sovereign bases down in Cyprus. So you're captured and tortured, and I know you've spoken about this in mm. the past. And how does it feel when people ask you to describe it? Very sort of bland and monotonous, quite frankly. It's just... It's interesting. It's really sort of hard to explain. So it's not sort of as if sort of immune to what, what had happened. But the fact is, what happened? You've got no control of it. And really, I got that, if you like, the mindset from part of our training. We're called prone to capture troops. So you have obviously periods where you go off you know, and you're catching rabbits and you know, making tea out of barks of trees, all that survival stuff. But actually, just as importantly, you spend anything from a week to two weeks, really, listening to other people's experiences who've been captured. And it's just not military guys, it's people who, you know, kidnapped victims, anybody being held against their will. They tell their stories, you have Q&As with them. The argument is, well, you listen to these people and then if there's just one sort of sentence that comes in handy if you're captured, it's worth it. And I sort of grabbed from a US Marine Corps pilot during the Vietnam War, Spent six years in, in solitary confinement, being held at the, which was a quite notorious prison called Hanoi Hilton at that time. Every major bone in his body had been broken. He had a self-heal. He had no teeth, no hair. You know, lost all the muscle mass on his backside because they just continuously just hit it with frayed bamboo. But he was alive. You know, he's a tree hugger now, whatever he is in, in Hawaii, but he's alive. And what he said, he said, you can't do anything physically about what they're doing because... You know, he says, well, I was a Marine pilot, so initially I'm resisting. And they said, well, instead of, you know, four guards coming in, well, six guards are coming. So you've got to accept that and then just keep, if you like, the integrity of your of your mind. And for him, he, you know, built a new house and lecture and then repainted it every couple of years. All those those sort of exercises that he found work for him. So I used to think of his story. I think, Do you know what, I'm on week two. You know, I know someone had six years of this and he's still running around, you know, hugging trees or whatever it is in, in Hawaii. So, so far, so good. You know, and there's this thing, if you're still breathing, you're still winning. So all of the, the interrogations and the burnings and all that sort of stuff, well, it happened. Don't want it to happen again, but well, it's done. And, you, you know, your teeth were smashed in with rifle butts. You yeah. were made to clean out latrines mm. with your hands and then lick your hands. Yeah. You got hepatitis. How do you deal with the pain? How do you separate the pain from the brain? That, yeah, I, it's just really accepting it. It's quite interesting. It's 
because of being by then, I don't know what it is, being in the I don't know, 16 years or whatever it was, you know, being used to being wet, cold, hungry, certainly, you know, being used to like getting fights and garrison towns and, you know, all that sort of stuff that goes on in infantry battalions. So it's not as if it's sort of, it's the first time that they've experienced sort of violence in, in, in that way, which I understand when people haven't, it becomes a quite a big shock. So I've had a sort of a, a sort of an indoctrination in, into that. But the pain was just a matter of accepting it. It's not as if I'm looking forward to it. So when the, you know, the doors used to get knocked to the, these steel plate doors that are kicking in because they're all warped to get in because obviously you knew you was going for interrogation or they're coming in to, you know, because they're getting bombed every night, they're taking casualties, they're coming to take you know, frustrations out. So you know that's going to happen, but it's not as if it's the fear of the pain because you know it's coming. It's the fear of the unknown. You know, what is going to happen? And certainly that banging of the doors and all that, so you know they're coming in. Or you can hear footsteps coming down the corridors and you can hear them, you know, talking with each other. And actually they pass your cell and they go into someone else's. You think, oh, great, I'll leave me alone for another half hour. It's fear of the unknown rather than the fear of the pain. In that situation, are you fearful of death? No, it's never really worried me. One of the things that I've always sort of thought about is I felt being in the military is like a mutual contract. So they gave me great, they gave me education, they gave me all those things that I needed. And part of that is, well, certainly for somebody like me, because it was in the infantry and the special air service, well, what you do, you go and fight. That's what you do. So part and parcel of that is the possibility of dying. And I suppose from a military point of view, it's quite good. But in person, it seems sometimes like irresponsible. I don't really care. I still don't. It's like, it's going to happen sometime. So it never has and, and, and well, still doesn't really worry me because it's, you know, we all got to die sometime sort of thing. So it's not as if it's the fear of dying. It was the fear of the unknown, if you like, of, well, what's going to happen tomorrow? And then go straight away, cut away from that, go, ah, I know someone who had six years of this. And then sort of try and justify it uh, that way. But the fact of dying, no, it never has. In, in fact, I, I go through this constant thing Every 10 years, you know, because I thought I'll be gone by that thing by the time I'm in my 30s. Get my 30s, I'll be gone by the time I'm in my 40s. You know, it just goes on, you know. Yeah, I'm not particularly worried about it. Well, it's interesting, given the context of this discussion, that we're talking about fear of death, because you almost didn't make it as a baby. And we are talking, coincidentally, in yeah. Guy's Hospital. Yes. <laughs> I and I say coincidentally because you're here now as a film consultant, but... You were found here as a baby yeah. in a Harrods carrier yeah. bag on the steps of Guy's Hospital. Yeah. yeah. What an, an extraordinary start in life. Yeah, and I, but I never really thought about it that way because it was... Uh, certainly as a kid, you know, I was adopted when I was five, so I went through the care system. And I thought it was great, actually. I thought it was uh, really good. You know, stuff I can remember, I thought it was really good fun because, you know, I lived in a... Big Victorian houses that were, you know, like four kids in a room, bunk beds, all that sort of stuff. Clearly, as I got older, I'd be moved into one of them rooms and there's, lo- there's loads of other kids. And, and I thought it was all right. And never really thought about it because my, my older brother was adopted as well. Not my natural brother, but from a, another family. He was an abused kid in the same home. And he was older than me. And so when he went off to foster an adoption and all that, and I thought that was that's what you do. You sort of this is the like the waiting room. So you're having fun there. And then what happens? You get picked up and then you get fostered and adopted, you know. Not in a fairy tale way. I realised that, you know, I didn't have a, a parents, but that was the, if you like, the system, you know, and then like this this the brother John, right, John's gone. Right. And then bizarrely, I went to the same house as John went to. So I thought, great. Never sort of thought about it. I thought it was just the natural thing. It sounds like you've been quite used to being in systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you failed at school. Yeah, miserably, yeah, yeah. Yeah, too lazy. 
And not far from here, actually. Bizarrely, I landed up in in the Tabard Estate, which is like you know about ten minutes away. Yeah, yeah, it's just too lazy. It, it felt like school was like a waiting room, where and actually living in a family sort of atmosphere as well was just the waiting room for when you can move off. So I thought, well, I don't need an education. Certainly, the views at that stage, my views were, were quite sort of low. You know, the horizons because it was if you get on the council, we have cracked it. So we're already on the council. So chances are, I'll get a council flat. I couldn't get a job with the chapters, with the print, because there was lots of prints there, because, you know, they didn't have an uncle or my dad was on it in the print. The docks here, and one of the reasons why this is amazing sort of regeneration, so all those docks, for, you know, when I was a kid, was all dead and desolate. So all those jobs had gone, the jobs for life. So get a job on London Transport, bus driver or a tube driver or a panel beater, because nobody really knew what a panel beater was, but apparently they made loads of money, so well, that's what we do. As long as you get on the council, get one of those jobs, cracked it. So what do I need an education for? And that was it. <laughs> and you, you left school at what age? 16, really. I started work really about sort of 15, really. And then just that last year didn't really bother because I thought, well, what's the point? And am I right in saying that your literacy wasn't great? No, so I didn't realise it at the time, but when I joined the... The reason why I was a, in the infantry as opposed to a helicopter pilot, like the film that we got shown, was that everybody there had the numeracy and literacy of what we now know as... Key stage two, 11-year-old or less, and mine was about a nine-year-old. How incredible that you have made so many people read your books. and Because you do a lot of literacy work for charity now, yeah, well, don't you? Yeah, I do, yeah. You go into failing schools and prisons and you know, youth offender institutions, those sort of things. So, you know, you do the SES bit, tell a few war stories, all that sort of stuff. Then... A little bit about writing, not too much because they find that boring, but talking about the films and the people you've done work with and all the different films and the little funnies and all that. And you go, well, look, it, you, look if I can't do it, you can. All you've got to do is start reading because once you start reading, it's an addiction. Then what happens? Your literacy goes up, but also at the same time, numeracy goes up. And I don't know why that happens, but that's why reading is so important because it helps with numeracy as well. And you say, well, if I can't do it, you can. All you've got to do is give it a go. You know? How did you start to write your books? I was asked. I was getting out of the special air service, and that's how it literally worked. You know, met the agent, went through the process. Book came out. I was in Colombia, and uh, the publisher's gone, well, this book's doing all right. And they, do you want to do another one? I said, what do you think? Of course. But how did you actually write, like, practically? Oh, it was, having... very, well, it was almost, well, it was very, very bland initially. What happened is, because I spent sort of three years doing presentations to different organisations, whether they're, you know, UK organisations, Americans, Germans, or whatever it is, because it's used as an example of planning preparation and how you can use the actions on and all these these sort of things. Different military academies, those sort of people look at it. And so I do those presentations. So by then, all the other external agencies' information was in that presentation, if you like. So initially, it was really bland. Like, well, it was. It was like a patrol report. And so the publishers or the editor went, well, it's all very good, but it's quite boring, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, so what I was told, I was told to read Touching the Void. Joe Simpson book. And he said, if you can get a sense of place, sense of environment and the emotion in to this, it'll work. So I've read the book many times. I didn't see the film for years because I didn't want to ruin the book, but the film's great. you know. But uh, read that and sort of trying to understand the way that Simpson was playing about with it and got on with it. Yeah, and it worked. Yeah. So they didn't ever say to you, we're going to pay you with a ghostwriter and, and that person. No, it was too write. tight. I just wanted the money. So it was only one book. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, so I did it myself. No. Because at that, that, that time you look at it and you go, great, that's the mortgage done. You know, in that sort of looking at those realistic things, well, you go, great, it's the mortgage done. Fantastic. 
You've said in the past that you feel, you know, you were raised on a council estate in South London. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it made sense that you would end up in the British Army. But if you had been born in the bog side, it would make sense that you were a member of the IRA. Yeah, yeah. Would it also have made a sort of sense for you to go into a life of crime? I mean, that was something that you flirted Yeah, well, that's what happened. That's why I would end up in the borstal system. I think that, that, again, it was all part of wanting stuff but not really willing to do the work to get it, whether it's the academic work to get the job that earns the money for the people to have those sort of cars or whatever, and the resentment that they've got them without thinking about, well, actually, they work quite hard for them. So there was all about, well, I want that, without the effort to go and get it because it was quite easy to do. And there was, there was a slight sort of point about that. It was, you know, the haves and the have-nots. And it was like, well, why have they got it? And like, well, clearly, because they work for it, you know. But at that stage, you think, oh, well, that's, this is all wrong. So not only I'm going to nick it and nick stuff that I wouldn't know what to do with anyway once I've got it, you know, no idea how to sell it or whatever, but nick it. So there was the satisfaction of I might have something of value, but the satisfaction of having it off of, of somebody who doesn't deserve it anyway. It was sort of a, a dual sort of reasons why, you know, it was sort of just nicking stuff, basically. And when you were in Borstal, did that just feel like another system? Yeah, yeah, which I wanted to get out of. So that was all part of that short, sharp shock, you know, what was going on at that time. And I thought, well, it's doing no good, basically. You know, it's, you know, otherwise, it was quite sort of you know, violent and all those, 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 those sort of things. And I think, well, is it worth doing all the nicking for this? But I knew that once I got out, which has been borne out, you know, through, through the ages, people going back to the same environments, they're going to do the same thing again. So, you know, the short shock didn't work, as in a lot of sort of penal reform. But... There was a lot of sort of groups that were lobbying government at the time about social mobility and, you know, these, you know, because there was no rehabilitation of going into the ball stores to try and get the kids out and trying to rehabilitate in a, in a better way. A bit of social mobility. And the military were one of them. And that's how it all really happened. Because the deal was, if you got accepted in the military, you didn't go back to the ball store. You went home until you got your reporting day. Yeah, go back and get your stuff, but that was fine. But you go in the army. And then, again, short-term sort of thing, thinking, oh, all right, I'll join the army, I'll get out of here. Not thinking that, well, maybe I'll be there for, <laughs> like, forever and I'll be out of here in about two months. But, you know, clearly didn't think about that. It was just like, right, there's a door open, I'll do it. Thinking I was going to be a helicopter pilot, as we all did, because that was the film. Then land up in infantry, but I thought it was all right. What did your parents think of you? Oh, they, they felt stupid. In, 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 uh, certainly during the army. My dad was a... It's like a proud desert from the Army Catering Corps, National Service. He's like, you know, what are you in the Army for? You know, that sort of stuff. Certainly the infantry. But then, you know, as all these things, you know, in, within a sort of couple of years, it all sort of changes. And it was all their idea anyway. You know, all that sort of stuff goes on. <laughs> what did they think of Bravo Two Zero, the book? They're quite proud of it, actually. They, initially, it was, because it was a bit of a cock up where certainly my parents told I was already dead and then like popped up about a week later, you know, this sort of, and, they, and then they had to go back and say, oh, well, he's not actually, <laughs> he's just been found sort of thing in Baghdad. So they've had that sort of roller coaster going on. The book come out and I had to buy it for him. So my dad went, I'm not buying it. Is it your book? Well, you buy it for me. I'm not going to buy it. So I had to buy him a book, you know. It's like, and I, I couldn't give him one. I had to go and buy one and give it to him. Have you ever found your biological parents? Yeah, it doesn't interest me at all. It's... And then again, I got it from my older brother. My older brother was sort of playing when he had a, uh, his, his first sort of couple of kids. He, he was sort of playing with it, generic diseases, and all those sort of things. Are asking, he says he doesn't know, and he was, and it sort of upset uh, my dad more than my mum actually. And I've never had that that need. And I thought, well, actually, it just creates a load of drama anyway. And I'm not that, you know, is what it is. So it's never been a big thing. Uh, still not really. 
Hey guys, it's Cheyenne Davis. You may know me from MTV's Teen Mom OG or Think Loud Crew podcast. I'm here with my dad, Papa Floyd, to tell you about our new podcast, Unfiltered Kitchen. The kitchen is the hub of the household for many of us. The one-stop shop for conversations both big and small. Cheyenne and I have been having open conversations about all aspects of life in our kitchen since well before she was able to see over the counter. And now we're inviting you into our own kitchen as a part of the family. Unfiltered Kitchen is a two-way street. I share my advice on cocktails, cooking, parenting, and the lessons I've learned. And I inform my dad what it's like to raise kids today, how generational barriers affect us, and the joys of being a daughter. Well, your daughter. Get ready for a whole lot of unfiltered advice. You can take it or leave it, but you're never going to leave this table feeling hungry for more. Listen to Unfiltered Kitchen wherever you get your podcasts. These days, you can't go anywhere on the internet without running into the most horrible takes. You know, your good old-fashioned homophobes, or your self-proclaimed alpha males, who are writing two-page articles titled, How to Score the Perfect Female in 10 Days. If you are just as sick of these outdated takes as we are, you will love our podcast, Outspoken, hosted by me, Sam Collins, and my incredible partner, Shannon. We are an LGBT couple who have seen it all, been called it all, and are ready to take on the never-ending world of outrageous online opinions. Each week, we bring you the most ridiculous videos, hot takes, and hellbent news we come across on the internet. So, come laugh with us as we dismantle outdated ideologies and tear apart the most confident idiots on the internet on our podcast, Outspoken. You can follow and listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you are listening right now. about failed relationships because yeah. I know you are happily married and have been for 20 odd yeah. years but it took a while to get to that point <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah no I've been well I've been married five times so it's quite interesting in a way that it's a mixture of certainly the system I was in but also the selfishness of wanting a bit of everything really so certainly in the military at that time it's changed now for the better but at that time there was no support set up for girlfriends or you know partners or whatever the you know the term would be then. So if you were stationed say in, in the UK and you got then sent to Germany for four years or Cyprus or wherever you may be going, so your your partner could come with you, and even if you had kids, they could come with you. But there's no support because you weren't married. If you got married, you then get a married court of subsidised housing of all the medical care and all that so it's very sort of clear cut and even at that stage if a female soldier became pregnant well they were out you know it's a really weird draconian sort of system so basically you know along with loads of other people go all oh, right well we're off to oh we'll get married it's, it's just within that environment that's what you do you get married which is totally counterproductive because it costs the army even more effort and money because within a couple of years it all goes wrong and you know and you land up there you know, all these sort of you know families in Germany who, who then have to be you know repatriated back I got into that and then certainly getting into special air service I was married in special air service and all of a sudden you in the scheme of things it's not a lot but we're in the military you're sort of really well paid and you can actually afford to buy a house and do all that stuff so people are buying their houses and all that and you sort of you know get married you get the car and all that sort of stuff and I thought, yeah, that'd be great because it, everything's there because you're in the army. You've got your house and the property boom then in the, in the 80s and 90s, all that sort of stuff. And then the other thing in my head, I weren't thinking, well, I'm away for about seven, eight months a year. 
And then I went on, a, a, I got offered a job for two years. And I went, yeah, all right. And then when I went home and sort of saying it would be all right, because I'm thinking, oh, it's great, because we saved loads of money over the two years. I went, oh, yeah, away for two years. I went, well, <laughs> you're off, I'm off, you know, it's all, and quite sensibly so, yeah. So it was quite interesting in that sort of selfishness, if you like, and then sort of trying to want a bit of everything. Do you feel vulnerable when you're in love? No, no, it's a mutual contract. It's like a, no, 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 far from it. Slavery's been abolished, isn't it? So it's like a mutual contract. So at any time, any one side could be going. You know, it's not as if my wife's gone, oh, yeah, everything's great and all that, or everything's terrible and I'm staying. You know, she's your own person. If she doesn't like it, she'll go. So the job is to make sure that she doesn't go. So that's where, if you like, the mutual contract sort of comes in, isn't it? Because it's, you know, it's pointless any other way. And those first four marriages, did you know before they ended that they were in danger of ending? Were you... Uh, do you know, I didn't even think that far. It just it is. And, you know, and because obviously in all sort of types of organisations, whether it's, you know, I don't know if you look at the police force or fire service, all these sort of institutions, the, the rate is quite high. And a mixture of the, obviously, what you know, the job is. But, you know, and again, a bit of the, the selfishness of wanting a bit of everything. But never really thought that far, quite frankly. It was all about that point of, well, I really enjoyed being in the army. So it was like, oh, it's great, we're off to sunset. So, oh, it's great, it's like, you know, this, that and the other, I'm doing this. And so it was all about being in the army as opposed to being married in the army. That was the problem. And do you think part of the reason your marriage now is so successful is because you're not in the army? Yeah, a mixture, really. I think that certainly about the whole separation thing, where you're away for so long, yeah, which, which you know, doesn't happen. I only know two successful marriages, military-type marriages, you know, we've been, you know, and now their kids are married and all that sort of stuff, and they're still together. And I think it's the trying to understand this mutual contract sort of business, which I didn't understand at that stage, you know. It's not as if it's always been there. It's that trying to understand that mutual contract. And probably there would have been a time where I'd go, well, do you know what? What's the priority? So if the priority is getting married or staying married, well, we've got it out of the army. Because there were people who were, you know, far more emotionally intelligent than me who got out after, you know, six, seven, eight years because it was affecting the fact is that they didn't see their kids or they... And you think, what's the matter with? What are you doing? But, of course, they were far more intelligent about it. And they got out. So they'd done their stuff, they'd done their bit, and now they get out into the real world and, you know, do family stuff. So do you think your failures as a previously married person have made you into a better husband yeah, now? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, again, understand that there's a bit more going on than just what you're doing, you know, because the old idea is whatever you're doing, you're going out there to get whatever it is. And normally it's financial gain, isn't it? We hopefully with some satisfaction about what you're doing, but you're bringing it back to do the stuff that you two want to do. That's the, if you like, the basis of it, as opposed to being out there and being a big wig, doing whatever it is and all that, and then coming back to sort of put your feet up. The, the, the work's got to be back within the marriage. So that's the whole thing. I don't own anything. I don't own a thing. I used to have a motorbike. I sold it before the winter because I was off on this film. So I was, I was out of the country for a couple of months. And I thought, well, I'm just going to garage it over the winter time. I'll get rid of it and get a new one in the spring. And the motorbike was the only thing that I owned. Everything else is in my wife's name. It's just because I don't need it. It's great. So bring it all in. Well, you've got it anyway. Does that give you a sense of control as well? Because if everything goes to shit, you can get out really quickly. No, no not really. I think it's that fact of... All right, the, the financial stuff of it, yeah, there is a the sense of control not having anything. So it's a, a sense of freedom, if you like, not having it, anything. But at the same time, it, it's looking, it, it shows a commitment. You go, look, look, do you have it all? I'm not, you know, I'm not interested in it. It doesn't really interest me. So you bring it in and you're sort of doing your, if you like, your bit to show commitment. 
continuous jokes about it all the time, you know, they're like, you know, they're like, well, we have, we've got to suck up to her now. It's pointless talking to you, you know, we get rid of you because she's got it all anyway, you know, all that sort of stuff. But the, the fact is there's a more of a sense of commitment rather than the freedom, really, because the fact that it's, even if it was this normal sort of, you know, the 50-50 thing and all that stuff, well, it is what it is. And the fact is, the fact of losing 50% of the divorce or, or, or even more, well, I'm not too worried about that because, well, I'll just go and make it some go and make it again, or, you know, and just sort of get my finger out and go and make some money. Do you believe in love? Believe in it as a mutual contract between two people and in a way that they want to live their lives together, yeah. as opposed to, and again, I mean, big trouble if I don't do the birthday card. All that, no, all that sort of stuff goes on. But the fact is, is that it's a two-way thing, isn't it? And the, and the fact is that the love of somebody who's, who's an absolute arsehole or something, well, that's dependency. That's nothing to do with love, is it? So that's that, that mutual contract. And aside from loading the dishwasher, mm. what would your wife say is the trickiest thing about being married to you? Getting a grip with me most of the time because you get all these mad ideas about doing that and you go, no, you're a dickhead. What you're, what you're really saying is, and I go, oh, yeah, you're right, yeah. Basically, there's this constant sort of reality checks. I get involved in the startups and the normal system where like most of them are fail and then one or two will come up and they pay for the rent, all that sort of stuff. So some of them are absolutely crazy. So I'll come back to that. This is really good. Look, look at this. Lady. And she'll go, no, it's not. Look, have a look at it this way. And you go, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then she go, dick. And then walk away sort of thing. So that it's getting grips of, if you like, the enthusiasm of going through doors. So you go going through those doors. And then obviously some of them just go totally wrong and all that. But it's all right because you come out and there's always another couple of others. And the more success you have, the more doors there are. Mm. So what happens, it just goes on and on and on and on. So then the thing that she does is do those checks on the doors. That sounds like a great team. And also sounds to me that you're very driven by progression. You've got to be moving forwards in yeah, some way. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Very much, almost feel guilty at the point of not taking advantage of the opportunities. The fact of, and it almost sounds cliche, but it, it, try not to make it sound like that. But if you're coming from the fact you've got nothing, and then all of a sudden stuff, all this stuff is happening, and you think, there's really a lot out there, whether it's educationally experienced or financial, or whatever, there's so much out there. And all of a sudden these doors are open, and you go, well, you've got to give it a go. You know, because it's mad if you don't give it a go. So what happens is people go, oh, you're, you're, you're lucky. And you go, no, you're not lucky. What it is is trying to identify the opportunities and then going for it. Everybody has luck, but it's trying to identify the luck. And where, where is it? So give it a go. Well, it doesn't work. Fine. Come out and try something else. Talk to me about being a psychopath. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, again, it helps me very much. About seven years ago, the Department of Experimental Psychology in Oxford were uh, carrying out these experiments about where um, psychopathy aids society as it goes against it. Because we all think, straight away, we think Hannibal Lecter, Dexter, all those sort of characters. So there's been a lot of work that's been going on and, and identifying people in, in different sort of spheres of life, certainly in institutions and employment, where, where they are and, and the reasons why they're there and why they, they thrive. And one of those areas they were looking at, the military, so the, the, the guys that sort of come to us and, they, and sat down and done some over period of, so I don't know, about two weeks, done some experiments. In fact, we went to Essex University because they've got the machines that go ping. So we went down there. You do a little bit of, of, of therapy and stuff, you know, when's the first time you've seen your mother, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then you do the clinical tests. And the readings became quite sort of, uh, in academia, became sort of quite famous for, they had to get another compliance team in. We had to resit them again because they thought the machines gone wrong. And so they come back and said, well, where you register in psychopathy, you're a psychopath. If you 
say for instance, I've gone mad and chopped 10 people up when I'm in court and all that. I'll go to Broadmoor because I range in that. But within that 1% or just less than 1% of, of you know, psychopaths, there's many subgroups. So within that subgroup. And basically people like me sort of exist in where you'd expect actually military, financial sector, legal sector, interestingly, the medical profession, and in particular in neurosurgery. And these sort of people who there's no room for empathy. Uh, certainly neurosurgeons got less than a millimetre to play with, you know, and, um, you know, if he does it wrong, he does it wrong, right, move on to the next one, because he's got to make sure he makes the next one better. I went home and I said, oh, you know, my wife said, well, how'd it go? I said, oh, I'm a psychopath. And she went, yeah, and? <laughs> and like, you know, and that was all part of the gripping thing that was talking about where, the, like, she just grips it. And then all of a sudden, then she became part of the process as well. I go, well, how do you, what do you do? And, you know, do you sort of control him and all that? And she's just grip him, you know. And actually what it worked out was what I like is that point of, of somebody sort of gripping it, saying, no, you don't do that. Actually, I'll show you. Obviously, you can't see it. It's on the radio, but I'll show you. So what happens is is part of it is it's almost the same as autism. We can't understand or can't read people's faces. So one of the reasons why I'm sort of decorated, you know, war hero and all that, is not because, like, war hero is the fact is that I don't recognise what's going on. So I can't recognise the fear in other people's faces. So go, right, we'll do this. Come on, let's go. And then, because I don't recognise it, so I just get on because I can't actually recognise the danger because it's a game. It's a, it becomes a game. So she prints these out for me. Oh, my goodness. So Andy's... So, it's a, so these were my... This, this was my new ones for when I went on the film last, last, uh, last year. So Andy's just handed me what look like six emoji faces. One is smiling. One has a downturned mouth. One has a very downturned mouth. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, <laughs> one really is sort of miserable. angry and... Yeah. And it's sort of sellotape, so yeah, that yeah, it's yeah. kind of laminated. Yeah, yeah. So and genuinely, you, you use this. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So oh, basically, what you do is go, right... She go, look at this. You know, she's upset. Look at this. This is an upset face. So when you see this face, what you do is, you know, whether it's make a cup of tea, go and buy some flowers or whatever it is. So what I'm capable of as a functioning psychopath, I mean, I'm capable of creating what's called cold empathy. So what happens is because my amygdala doesn't work, that's the whole basis fear. of the fear. Yeah, the fear. So fight and flight, all those things, it just don't exist. So one of the things is empathy doesn't exist as well. But what I can do is create and you can see it on the on the trials where you know the neurons doing their stuff. What I understand is that people will be upset about something. So what I need is then the guidance to do something. Say so cat's dead, I don't really care, but I know you care. Right. So then, right, what do if the cat's well, go and get a bunch of flowers or something? And then so I can create an empathy, and I understand that you're upset, but I don't understand it. If you see what I mean, I don't yes. feel it. I don't feel it at all. So that's so interesting because when we first started talking, you were talking to me about the boy in Iraq who was herding yeah. goats who compromised your yeah. position. Now, if I'd been in that position, obviously I would never be in the SAS because I would be completely incapable. But I can imagine feeling fear, but also, oh my God, what are we going to do with this child? Because I don't want to harm him because imagine his family would be grieving. If yeah, yeah, yeah. That process would happen in my head, which would make me ineffective. Yes. But are you saying that you don't have that process? No, you don't. You know, what it is, if you're looking at that instance, so the fact is we try to get hold of the boy, but he was too fast. He'd gone, he'd gone to the Iraqi position. So the fact is we're not going to sort of take him down there and kill him and all this sort of stuff for a number of reasons. There will be a time where he might have to be killed, and that would be my job because I was the commander. But basically what, what happens is, is that what you're trying to do is stop him going to the Iraqi gun positions. So you get him down. 
Now, what we'd initially done was then we bound him up, keep him there with us, and we'd take him there with us. We wouldn't have killed him at that stage because the way that we operate is what's called hard routine. So all your kits on all the time, you urinate, you defecate in bags and everything. Everything has to go with you when you leave because you might have to go back. So you leave no sign, you don't bury anything, there's no smoking, no cooking, you know, you don't have sleeping bags, you know, all the kits on all the time. So when we first got to that position, before it was first like, well, done, like, well, I went out with three other guys and we'd done what's called a clearing patrol, just making sure we understood what was around us before it got light. And sometimes you, you, you encounter dogs and things like this that might compromise that you're there. So you'd kill them, but you don't leave them there because then, well, there's somebody going around killing dogs. So what's going on? You'd kill them and you'd bag them up. So you have uh, bin liners and like, bag them up, put the sand in. So the fact is you can't avoid the fact that the dog's dead. But then it questions, you know, the, the local population going, well, where's the dog? If it gets to that, where's the dog? Oh, the dog's gone. The dog's not dead. There's not a problem yet. The dog's just gone. So you'd have to carry that dead weight. So for the boy, it's counterproductive sort of killing him in, in that point. And also, if you do kill him straight away and you do get caught, you're not going to last five minutes in that immediate area. But well, then what we'd have done would have taken him with us for this helicopter pickup, just dump him. You know, it'd be traumatized, nightmare. But actually, he's in the middle of a war. You know, he's one of the lucky ones. Over 150,000 civilians were killed in that war. So therefore, he's one of the survivors. If it come to the point of the, the only way to stop the compromise would be to kill him, then I would do that. Number one, because it's my job to do it. But number two is that there's a bigger responsibility between the, the fact of that boy and then the team. Unfortunately, we're both in this you know, both sort of parties are in this conflict in the middle of a war. And there's a bigger responsibility to keep myself alive and even more so keeping everybody else alive. And they've got the mutual responsibilities as well. But the fact is, if you were to come on, you're the one who does the boy. So that would be me. And we'd have to bag him up and carry him. And I know you have killed people. And I know that you're often asked about how that feels. Yeah. And when you were 19, that was the first time that that happened. Yeah. And when I read you describe it in writing, you actually said that one of the things was that you felt an enormous amount of fear. Yeah. And and then shame. At how, you didn't express that to any of your colleagues, yeah. that you were fearful. No, no. In, in fact, because they, nobody wants to hear all that stuff. So And, the, and, and during that time in the war, there was this was in, in Northern Ireland. There was big incentives to get the first killer that tour or an a, what's called an A1 arrest, the top 20 terrorist. If you managed to arrest one of them or you killed a terrorist, you got two weeks' leave at the end extra. So you weren't in place for what they call a rip, the relief in place where the next battalion comes in and the whole thing is a logistical nightmare. So literally you go two weeks before that, you go home, you've got two weeks' leave, then you get the two weeks' leave after with everybody else, so you get a month off. So there was all these incentives, you know, the big thing. So when I got the first killer led tour, so it was great and all that sort of stuff. But actually, and it was all on the news that night and all that sort of stuff going on. But actually, everybody just wanted to know the war story bit. So I told them that. And then uh, I thought, well, I'm not going to tell them. You know, it was like, I don't want to get up yet because they're still shooting sort of thing, you know. And again, because it was that fear of that unknown. The very first time, I'm like, whoa, is this, you know. So that whole... Thing. I felt that I couldn't tell anybody because nobody wanted to hear it anyway. They just want all the war stories because of this big, you know, first kill of the tour, all that stuff going on. And it was only when I got into the Special Air Service when we'd done a couple of jobs and you got guys there who'd been in the Special Air Service, you know, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years, going, I don't want to do that one again, you know, and it was all, it was all right. There's a thing, it's called the gift of fear. And it, it's because what it does, it brings everything into a, a more sensible sort of viewpoint. 
certainly with the psychopathy, what I'm able to do is, is, is actually sort of, it's not slow motion in that way you think as you might see on, on TV, but almost everything's very easily broken down. Now that I've got it and understand, well, actually, what I didn't understand was that it's the first time it happened and there's not that too much ability to be actually, to have fear, which is going to affect you, actually try and use it. And again, this, this you know, I don't even know, come out return, it's great, it's a gift of fear. And now you can focus that in. And then certainly as time gone on and realising now, because I didn't, I had no clue until I'd done these, these trials, whenever it was, that actually it was a different type of experience from that fear. It was an experience of, of not knowing what to do because I've never experienced it before. So it's trying to sort of narrow it down. There's great sort of accounts of certainly uh, sportsmen who, who register quite high with their psychopathy, who are able to break down their movements in whatever action it was, particularly basketball, where they can do their three jumps and they and everything comes in a more of a slow motion picture from comes in like this really weird sort of pen picture. And they just do their own thing with all this stuff going around them. And certainly as I sort of progressed in the military, that's how things used to sort of turn out. You'd not slow motion, but it, it seemed more clearer than it than it actually was. And you don't attach feeling to it? No. No, 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 no. Because if you attach feeling to it, we'll even mess it all up. Because it's not about feeling, is it? It's, it's, it's about sort of, it, it's either, you know, well, two things, trying to kill someone or stop being killed. That's basically it. So the, the, the actual feeling about it, there's, there's no point. And that's one of the reasons why, if you're looking at, I don't know, say the, the American experience in, in Vietnam, and even more exaggerated during the Second World War, where the vast majority of people firing weren't actually aiming at people because they had that feeling. And that's why, you know, oh, so many... It, cost, it took about 44,000 rounds in Vietnam to kill one of the enemy because people aren't actually aiming. They were, you know, going through the motions because feelings are in a way... But that's, that's the human condition. That's, that's, that's what it is. You know, it, it's, it's not as if I'm the normal sort of condition. Do you ever cry? No. Have you ever cried in yeah, your life? Yeah, opera. Oh, my... Yeah. Is yeah, that yeah, the yeah. only time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't know what I'm looking at. I'm going, what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and even worse, German. <laughs> I know, it's mad. Which it? opera? Yeah, Ring Cycle. Was it only the once that you... Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And genuinely, were you sitting there thinking, oh, what's happening to my yeah. eyes? Yeah, yeah. And it's great. And it's, uh, and, and, you know, bizarrely German rather than sort of some emotional big sort of Italian thing going on. Yeah, it was great. But it's about 15 hours, isn't it? It's probably what I was crying about. I'd want to get out. But, but no, it was... Uh, Whenever that was, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. Have you listened to it again since? Yeah, all the time, yeah. So when you listen to it again, it doesn't prompt the same reaction? No, it doesn't, no. No, it doesn't. But that was, whether it was the environment or what, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, I don't know what was going on. But yeah, yeah, 10, 12 years ago. My final question, Andy McNabb, is whether you feel successful. It comes and goes sometimes. Sometimes it's um, uh, thinking, oh, this is going all right. And then thinking, well, oh, well, it could have gone a bit better. And then why didn't it go a bit better? So it sort of ebbs and flows. But to generalise, yeah. You know, and it's feel successful and lucky about it because there's so much luck involved as well. So it's a bit of both, really. Yeah, successful and lucky with it. How old are you now? I'm uh, 59. OK, so as you said earlier, you're still breathing, so you're yeah, still yeah, winning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, still breathing, still winning. It's great. Andy McNabb, thank you so, so much for appearing on How to Fail. Thank you. 